0: For you are the true and the living God, the I am. You want us to know concerning you, and that which is in your word is true, for it comes from you. You have ordained the events of human history, and they will fall out according to as you have decreed. And as we approach this study of your kingdom, your church, and the items of the last things of eschatology, You have revealed in your word uh, truth concerning these areas. Lord, we know that there is difference of opinion even among sincere Bible-believing Christians. Lord, our desire is to pursue after truth, that we would understand what your word says and that we would apply it to every area of life. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us with great power this week. That you would watch over me in these presentations to present uh, your word. Be with us all and encourage us and inspire us with the word of God. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well actually, the first few minutes I want to preach to you something. Uh, before we get into some of the uh, the modular in, in terms of uh, the PowerPoint. And this is a seminary class, and uh, it is a course for you that are studying for the ministry. And I just want to encourage you in the next several minutes of the task that is, before you and and those of us that are teaching elders uh, as a reminder of what God expects of us and I hope that uh, we will be fired up in terms of what is the mission before us and the determination to see it through. The reality is this, to the preachers, those heralds of the gospel, to those heralds, the Scripture reveals, has been given that glorious message of the gospel and that that is the message that we are commissioned to take forth into the world and that in taking forth that message, the world will be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit as that message is faithfully proclaimed. Those of you that are already in the ministry, uh, you are leaders. Those of us that are elders, we are, whether it's a teaching elder or a ruling elder, we're the leaders of the church, we are to help God's people learn how as an individual they fit into the overall kingdom of God. How each family, how the family can participate and be of an an invaluable service to the ongoing work of the kingdom of God. We each need to learn how we can fit into God's great eternal plan. Some of you may be aware that one of the, uh, of the distinctives of the RPCUS is that we are what we're going to talk about some during the seminar, post millennialists. And meaning that we have a victory orientation. I'll describe that in a moment. But in one sense, we do not practice eschatological liberty in our denomination. We expect our officers to hold. Uh, to the distinctives of postmillennialism, biblical postmillennialism, and that we believe that to be the case because we believe that we are bound to the Westminster Standards, and that is what the Westminster Standards teach, and that's why we have it as a distinctive. So we we don't make any apologies for that whatsoever. We are seeking to be faithful to the Scriptures. Now, what are the main features? of <clears throat> biblical post-millennialism. Well, we're going to see as we develop this throughout the week the idea that Jesus Christ is not waiting to reign way off into the future. The Lord Jesus Christ is reigning right now. And that He has all power and authority in heaven and earth right now. And He, as the scriptures says, that He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. His kingdom has already come and this kingdom will be victorious in space and time on planet earth. And this gospel that we proclaim will win over the nations in time. And we see others saying, well, I just don't see that now. But I don't base my theology, or shouldn't base my theology on what I see. If we were to do that, we would never make any goals or make any accomplishments. What matters is what does the Word of God promise? That's what matters. You trust in a promise. When Israel was ready to go into the land of Canaan, God had already told Moses, I have given you the land. Now, they sent out spies as a reconnaissance to to see how best they would take the land. Of course, those uh, ten spies, twelve were sent in. Ten came back with a bad report, but two of them said, by all means, let's go in and take it, Joshua and Caleb. But the ten spies, they gave a bad report, and it affected all of Israel. It says they wept all night in their tents, and they didn't go in. Consequently, God says, I will cause you to wander in the wilderness a year for every day that you are in there. It was Joshua and Caleb who said, God has promised. Now the ten spies said, we saw giants in those lands. We saw the sons of Anak. Uh, they're not nomadic tribes as we have encountered before. They live in fortified cities. Yes, it's a wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. But the circumstances are too great. We cannot do it. And Joshua and Caleb says, well, God has said it's ours, so let's obey God. So it will always boil down to, are you going to be obedient to what God has promised? Do you understand what God has promised? And so the gospel will be, as we're going to see in the Scripture, will be victorious in history. And this is where we preachers come in. Preachers, we are the actual instruments that help bring about this glorious message to the world. Your present, and what's interesting is your present worldview does make a difference in how you live. Is your worldview is it pessimistic? Do you believe everything's going to the dogs? Um, Are things definitely getting worse and worse? And there's a tendency to think that these days, isn't it? Uh, But is that the way it's always going to be? Is that what we think? And it's just going to get worse and worse up until Jesus comes and then He'll just deliver us out of this somehow? Back in the 1950s, there was a Bible preacher by the name of J. Vernon McGee and he made a famous statement uh, that did impact a generation. He says, and he's of a persuasion that we're going to talk about He says, why polish brass on a sinking ship? Why be engaged in all this cultural uh, renovation if, according to his theological view, we are destined for failure in terms of the church impacting society in the long run? So you can have that view of J. Vernon McGee and... A lot of others follow that today are very pessimistic of what the future is for the church. But then, if you have a worldview that understands the Scriptures and understands the promises that God's give has given and who understands the nature of the message and the one who's empowering that message, you have a different perspective of the future. One of my favorite examples of this is... There was a family that came when I was in a mission work in Texas, in Corpus Christi. A family came there years ago uh, that had been raised in a pessimistic eschatology. But by the Lord's uh, providence, they had come to see what the Scripture says, that there would be a victory of the Gospel. And I remember, uh, I've never forgotten what uh, this Tricia Miller, it was the Miller family, Mike and Tricia Miller, and Tricia Miller, they had, had, they had at that time, I think, about five or six children. But she said, before I became a post-millennialist, she said, I was of another persuasion. And she said, when I got married, I did not want to have children. Because why bring children into, the, into a world that's going downhill and all of this tragedy is around us, it's not worth it. She didn't want to have children. I said, I guess these six children are glad they, you thought otherwise later. <laughs> she said, this eschatology changed my view of motherhood. I said, stop right there. I have never heard anybody tell me that post-millennial eschatology affected their view of motherhood until now. You need to talk to me more about this. She says, well, it changed everything. Now I want to raise my children to be an integral part in the ongoing work of the kingdom, where they fit in, that they will be that special part of the victory of the gospel. So he said, we want to have as many children as we can. And so we see it does affect, your worldview does affect the way you live. And then we see if you have, if you're a soldier and you're fighting in a battle, and if you were to know the event, and and if you were to uh, have the reconnaissance tell you there is absolutely no way we will win, period. It's all over. Now, what kind of incentive would that be to your soldiers? They're willing to go continue to persevere and to sacrifice if they knew that there's no hope. But what if, on the other hand, you have a perspective that, that what you do does make a difference? And that even though God has ordained the end, now someone has said, what if you already know the end, and if it's, and it's going to be victorious, well, you might as well not do anything. You know, that's not how, how it works. If you have a positive outlook and know where the future is going, it has a tendency really to motivate you further to get involved. And so we see here that we have to have the perspective that our lives do make a difference. Now, this is where it all comes in for us preachers. Uh, There's several passages that I want us to take a look at. We'll deal with these passages more in depth, throughout the week. But turn to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days... And was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's going to give you a heads up that this is a prophecy... Not of the second coming at the end of the world, as some tell us. This is a prophecy of the first advent of Christ. This is a specific prophecy of His ascension and His enthronement at the right hand of the Father, as other passages tell us. The the Son of Man is a term referencing Jesus. And... He is given, will be given a dominion, a kingdom, and it will not be destroyed. Now that's important for us to understand. Also, I want you to turn over to Psalm 110, which happens to be one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament that shows you the importance of this psalm. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift us up his head. Here is the promise of God the Father speaking to God the Son that the Son will be victorious. His kingdom will be victorious. All your enemies are going to be subdued under your feet. God the Father says to God the Son. Now, in understanding this, turn to Matthew Twenty-eight to a passage that should be familiar to many of us called the Great Commission. And let's take a look at Matthew 28, beginning at verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Marching orders of the the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has been raised from the dead. This is just prior to His ascension. He talks to His disciples and He makes... An incredible statement. Now, sometimes people leave out verse 18. When they're talking about the Great Commission, you don't want to leave out verse 18. Verse 18 is the, one of the most powerful things about it and is what guarantees what's going to happen here. Jesus says, I have all authority. The word there, we'll examine this more later in the week. He says, I have all exousia. That's the Greek word for authority. I have it all. And it talks about if you have all the authority, you have all the power. He says, I've got it all. And since I have it all, I've got a commission for you. I want you to go into the world and make disciples. Not just to witness to them, not just to share the the gospel and not know what happens. He says, you are to go and make disciples of of the nations of the earth. Meaning, the nations will not only be evangelized, the nations... Uh, as a whole, their whole fabric will be impacted by the gospel message. And he says to teach them everything that I've taught you. Baptize them in the name the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then that wonderful statement, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I've always likened this, you know, when as a young boy, I'd uh, go out and... Then you may run across some bullies, and you find out that these bullies start to pick on you, but you know back home you've got big brothers with you. They're a lot older. Now, your bully buddies, they may pick on you for a while and say, and all of a sudden your big brothers come in and say, come over here. And the big brothers come over here, and all of a sudden now that big brother's there, who's going to take care of you, say, you don't want to mess with me now, because if you do that, you're going to have to mess with him. Now, think about this. What kind of attitude would you have if you know that the one who says, I will always be with you, I have all the power. Who is guaranteeing the success of the mission? Jesus is guaranteeing the success of the mission by virtue of the fact he says, I have all the power and I am with you. That ought to encourage us. One time... Calcedon church when i was a part of Calcedon for years down in the dunwoody when we were in the dunwoody area after a service uh, some there were some visitors there and they got up and uh, they said i introduced myself to them and they said we understand this is a post-millennial church and i said well that's that's true of course i asked them what do you think that means and they told me and i said they said well you know what is the basis i said do you know anything about the great commission I said, yeah. And I says, uh, do you think the Great Commission, we believe the Great Commission will be successful, that a sovereign God does not lose. And they go, okay. <laughs> That's satisfying. You know, if I, had, if I only had one passage, this is enough right there. That's all we had. We got many passages. The Lord will be successful. Now, Turn over to Ephesians 1. Look at verses 18-23. through I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the, the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We're going to see here, as we develop this point more later in the week, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the instrument in the hands of the Lord Jesus, whereby he will subdue the world. Now, there's a passage that you also need to take a look at, and that is in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, verse 15. This whole imagery here in Revelation 19 has one coming out of heaven on, riding on a white horse with others riding uh, behind him on white horses and in white robes. And he's clothed with, with a robe dipped in blood. He's coming to wage war in righteousness. And he, on him is a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That tells you who it is. It's Jesus. But look at verse 15, and this is powerful. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nation. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Now we'll develop this more, but for the time being, this imagery of a sword coming out of his mouth, referencing really the word of God, which the scripture says is sharper than any two-edged sword. And as Ephesians says, the uh, sword, The sword of the spirit is the word of God. And it is this word of God that the king of kings will smite the nations and subdue them and rule them as a rod of iron. And this is where the preaching of the gospel comes in. Here's where the heralds now are really emphasized. I want you to turn to this passage in Romans chapter 10. Look at verses 13 through 17. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they do not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of God. This passage tells us the importance of the herald. He says, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And he goes on to say, now how shall they call upon him if they have never, in whom they have never believed? And then it says, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, one of the most powerful things about this passage is this. When he says, how shall they believe in him? Who's him? Jesus. How are you going to believe in Jesus whom they have not heard? The only way you can become a Christian is if you hear the voice of the Son of God. And we're going to develop that. Jesus says, you get, all those who hear my voice, they follow me. They're my sheep. To be a Christian, you have to hear Jesus preach to you. But what's incredible is, you hear Jesus preach to you through a preacher. A man, a mortal, fallible man, called by God to be his ambassador, his herald. It is the herald who brings the good news. When the herald speaks the truth of the word of God, you have heard Jesus speak. That's why it says in verse 15, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. He's talking about the feet of the preacher, the herald. Now, you're not talking about his physical foot. What does it mean? Wherever his feet take him, the gospel goes with him. And wherever he goes with the message, it is good news. I remember when I was in college and I was involved in the campus ministry, At the time I was in the pre-med program, I believed that God wanted me to be a medical doctor. And it was my senior year that the Lord impressed me that that's not where I want you, John. Never regretted it ever since, to be a preacher. (laughs) But I thought about being a medical missionary. And I remember I went to a conference in Birmingham, Alabama, and one of the the uh, people they brought in to talk to us was a guy by the name of Dr. Salto. He was a medical missionary. He was like 80 some years of age at that time. And he came in and he talked about some of his experiences and he was a medical missionary to China and he said on one occasion, I rode on a donkey back 1,000 miles to take the gospel to a village. He says, when I got there, they heard I was coming and when he showed up, they all ran to him and said, tell us about this Jesus. He rode a thousand miles on the back of a donkey to get there. Part of my heritage is that I am in the possessor of a diary of my great-great-grandfather on my mother's side. His name was William Otis. My mother was an Otis who became an Otis. (laughs) It was A-U-D-I-S-S. My aunt, her, her sister, was given a diary that was found in the old farmhouse up in Wisconsin. Her brother said, I think because God had worked in here, you ought to have this diary. And then her children printed this diary and gave it to her. This was a diary of William Otis, who was uh, in England, and he was converted. This diary, all this diary is, is a journal of his preaching. That's all that's in this diary. The first entry is 1839. The last entry was 1899. Uh, In the 1870s, he will move his himself and his ten children to America because of tough times, and will settle in Wisconsin. My parents were from Wisconsin, so I saw this diary. My aunt says you ought to read this diary. She says, John, I think we might be Christians because of this diary of our great ancestor and i read that and i was just blown away and here was a man he was a primitive methodist and the primitive Methodists, uh, uh a peculiar bunch in england uh very evangelical and this was a journal a journal of his preaching from one village city to another for a period of 30 years in england and during that time, uh, as I would read what happened in that, I just just shake my head. I said, I "Cannot believe this. I didn't know this was this person existed." And then I said, one day, I want to retrace those steps. I went on the internet about six years ago, and I said, "I wonder if these places still exist." I found every one of the villages and the cities that he went and preached in. Every one of them. I saw his preaching circuit. I said, "Someday, God, will you get me to England?" I really didn't ever think I'd get there. But a year ago, God opened the doors to go to London to debate a Freemason uh, in London, England. And since uh, I, that that door was open, I got to go. I said, "I will not get that close <laughs> and not retrace those steps." And so I rented a car and and I I went, the train got up there, and I went, I had the diary. I had the diary in my hand. I had all the cities, and I went from one city to another, retracing the beautiful steps of my great-great-grandfather. Now, he wasn't theologically trained, formally trained, but one thing is true if you read his journal. He had a passion for souls, he loved Jesus uh, and it was clear. And he just wanted to bring people to faith. And I would go to these towns, and as I would stop in that town, I'd pull out the journal, and I would read what happened. And one of them was a place where he went, and he says, I went to this place to preach, and most of it was open-air preaching. He'd just go out into a field, start preaching, some would sing, and a crowd would gather. And then he would, they would go and have a feast, and then they would talk to people. And on this one occasion... He went there and there was a man, he said, there was a, a, a man uh, of the, uh, the vile sort hired a thug to run me out of town. And he said when this thug arrived, he heard the preaching and he didn't run my great-great-granddad out of town because he was converted when he got there. <laughs> and so, and I never realized that this little chapel, I got on there, and I googled Earth, Little Hale, H-A-L-E. was a little 300-person hamlet in 1839. Still 300 people there today. The infrastructure has never changed. The road system is the same. And I knew where it had an X in an 1840 diary of where he lived. And I said, well, maybe the chapel's here. And I said, surely that place wouldn't exist. I said, well, maybe the Historical Society will know that, something. So I, wrote the, I, I looked up the Historical Society, and guess where they were meeting in November of, night, uh, of last year for a historical meeting in Little Hale Methodist Chapel. And I, I emailed the guy there, and I said, I'm so-and-so. You don't know me, but I'm the great-great-grandson of William Otis, And I'm coming to retrace his steps about Little Hell Chapel. Do you know anything about it? He says, well, I'm a member of that church. Nine members. (laughs) But you know what? I documented on film. One of the older ladies said, you want to know where the preacher lived? He lived right down here. I said, you mean right down here? He said, yeah. And there's this little shop where he built wagons. All that's in there. I said, right down here. So I got there and she says, well, you know, you can preach. So what I did, I asked them, I said, can I preach in my great-great-granddaddy's chapel? I said, I'm a Presbyterian. I know you're a Methodist. I said, but let me tell you something. He and I think alike. <laughs> so would you let me preach here? He said, well, let's check. And they said, we'd love to have you. So on the, actually, I preached a sermon in the chapel of my great-great-grandfather on the anniversary of 167 years to the day when he preached in that chapel. And I walked in there, and all of a sudden, the sense of history. And you know how the scripture says, and if you read his diary, it talks about he prayed for his children, that they would know Christ. And he came to know Christ, and, he, and you could see what was on his heart. And as I preach in that chapel, you know, the Psalms talks about that we our children are a heritage and we shoot our children into the future. And I said to them that day, my great-great-granddaddy shot an arrow and it has traversed the great ocean and the great-great-grandson has come back to give you the truth again. See, everywhere those steps go, they're beautiful steps. Wherever the preacher goes, good news, good news of the gospel. Lives are changed. And so we see, brethren, the Bible refers to us as heralds as fellow workers of the gospel. And therefore, that this gospel is the only gospel that saves Saul. And there is no other gospel. And we are commissioned to preserve that treasure, no matter what. And we are commissioned to shepherd the flock of God. And all of our energies as a preacher are to be focused on that task. And that we have to be willing to do whatever it takes to get that message across. And pay whatever price is necessary in the proclamation of that price. We know the history of Paul, Peter, James, others who were martyred for the faith. We know about the covenanters and the preachers and those great stories that we can read that are carried forth with us today in some books of those who on being executed would preach. I love the one where the preacher, they said, you have any last words? You don't ever say that to a preacher. And what was hilarious about that is he he preached, he preached for a while, and now he's being hanged for his preaching. You would think they would not let him have another opportunity to affect people. So he he preaches for a while and he says and he stops. They put the hood over him and all of a sudden he goes, Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, I got another point. He takes the hood off and he preaches a little bit more and says, Okay, I'm through. And then they hang him. And he goes to glory you willing to pay those of you that are aspiring to the gospel ministry? Are you willing to pay that kind of price? But you see, that's what God's called us to do. We're not our own. I am simply a tool in the hand of Almighty God. And I'm to expend all my energies for His sake. I am His ambassador. I'm not here to do my business. If you're a preacher and an elder, you're not there to do your business. You're there to do the Lord's business. And if it kills you, it kills you. But the treasure is worth it. And we have to, rem- uh, the Herald reminds the people of God constantly we're going to win in the end. We're going to win in the end. Your life does make a difference. And we will do everything we can to advance the cause. You know, if you're a soldier fighting, Soldiers die. And there are many soldiers in a battle who will die, but their death was instrumental in the overall success of the battle. They will never see the victory. They never see VE Day or VJ Day. But they paid a price. Their death helped win the cause. We may never see a lot of things, but we do seek to be faithful In our time. That's what God expects. He simply expects you to be faithful. As an individual, as a family, be faithful in your time. This is what the time God has allotted you. So you do everything you can to make use of it. But here's the exciting thing. You know you're going to win. Some people say, well, that's not exciting. You know, if I have a favorite uh, football team and I may want to record it and somehow... I don't, I, someone tells me uh, the, the the end score, and I says, I didn't even get to see it. Oh, it was exciting. It went into double overtime, and they overcame a 30-point deficit in the last quarter. And you go, but, you, John, you already know the outcome. You know what? I am still going to watch that tape. <laughs> because when they're down by 30 points, I know something's going to happen, and I, I can't wait to see what happened to bring them back and even us even though i know the victory it is still thrilling to watch how the victory was won now we know the end result and we know it's going to be wonderful and but we still work hard brothers sisters you are on the winning side if you know the lord jesus and don't let anybody try to convince you otherwise. Say, well, it sure doesn't look like it right now. Hey, the game is not over. <laughs> it's not over. And just because you see it here, don't be like the ten spies You said, well, they live in fortified cities, and there are giants there. I mean the big guys. So, doesn't matter. We will win. And you work to that end. And you shoot your children into the future with expectations. And lo and behold, some of them may end up crossing an ocean 200 years later to retrace your beautiful steps. You never know. This is the the hope that we have as Christians. This is the task that we have before us. And it is glorious. Let us pray. Lord, we ask for your blessings now upon us as we engage in this study of how you have won the day in history. And we're excited to see how you are going to win it and how you have won it as we turn the scriptures page by page to see the wonderful story. Bless us in the the days ahead and teach us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to take a break uh, for about eight or nine minutes. And then we're going to come right back for the final hour and we're going to begin our formal study on covenant theology.